0: Street epistemology is a wonderful approach that anyone can learn. Please follow me on Twitter at magnabosco or on Facebook and YouTube at magnabosco210. You can learn more about street epistemology at streetepistemology.com. Hi everybody. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Steve did a lot of work behind the scenes to make sure that this happened and I'm so happy to see that the room's filled too. That's nice to be able to talk to people when you have more than five or ten people in the room. So that's really important. Thank you. Makes me feel welcome. We're also recording this. Um, Don's got a camera. I've got a couple cameras around the room and hopefully we'll put this online so that other people can experience it as well. I honestly believe that within five years the majority of the atheists that you know will be using the approach of street epistemology when it comes to having a conversation with a believer. I honestly think that and and why do I say that? I say that because for the last three years I've been going out on the street and initiating talks with believers sometimes really really bad ones and sometimes really good ones but I have found that this is an effective approach for having a conversation with somebody about a deeply held belief. I wanna quickly go over the topics that I'm gonna cover today. There's a lot of ground to cover here and I wanna go through it as fast as possible. I also wanna show a couple of videos to drive home this point of street epistemology. I'm gonna tell you a little bit about my background. Where did I come from? Who am I? You can get an idea of that. I want to explain what street epistemology is and some of the common misconceptions about it. There are a lot of misunderstandings. People think that it's you're proselytizing for atheism or something and there's a lot of misunderstandings about it. I want to clear the air as far as what that is. There's also a lot of people that are noticing it above and beyond the atheist community. People that have made careers out of their belief. They're, they're apologists. They're Christian apologists, Muslim apologists they're noticing the videos that are out there, not just mine, but other other people. And they're getting worried by it because they can see how effective it is. We're gonna get into that. I'll show you a video of them talking about it. It's quite interesting. And I'm gonna show an on-screen example where you're on an airplane and the person next to you starts a conversation and they say something. What would be the appropriate response if you wanted to use street epistemology? I'll also show a couple of videos To drive home this point. Real conversations with real people, they're not actors, and within 10 minutes you can see the gears turning in their head like why do I think that this thing is true? It's really an incredible thing. I'm also gonna talk about scary supernovas and revealing light bulbs. What the hell is that? Well I'm, I'm gonna get into that, I'll explain what that is. And then I'm gonna close by talking about a disconnect that I see in the atheist community. And I want to shed some light on that and see if we can't address that and move forward. All right, so my name is Anthony. I live in San Antonio, Texas. Huge fan of The Atheist Experience. I've been watching it for the last four or five years. My family knows that if it's 4.30 on a Sunday, don't bug Dad, (laughs) because he's watching the show. Uh, Even if we're traveling, I try to catch it. And I've, I've learned a great deal from from the show, from the atheist community of Austin, from all the speakers that they brought in, and from the, the actual TV show. I've learned how to defend my atheism far better than I ever would. I probably wouldn't feel comfortable go out, going out in public and just chatting with, r- with strangers about atheism or their belief if I didn't have the show as uh, to fall back on and, and to learn from. So I'm very grateful for that. Another thing that, I'm, that I've been doing for the last three years is popularizing this idea of street epistemology. I didn't come up with it. There's a book by Dr. Peter Boghossian, I have a signed copy for your library, if you don't have one already, and he, he wrote this book called A Manual for Creating Atheists, and in it he talks about this idea of street epistemology. You're gonna know all about this by the, by the time that the talk is done, more so than you probably ever wanted to know, but you'll, you'll learn about it. Street epistemology is not telling anybody what to think. We're not telling them that believing a God is stupid and we want you to be atheists. That's not at all what it is. It's more about a reflective dialogue to understand what the person believes and the methods they use to get there. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. It's the study of how people arrive at knowing what they claim to know. That's all it is. It's it's a fancy word. It sounds really important, but that's, that's really all it is. And... Boghossian conceived of this idea and he started realizing that the way that we're going about, the way that atheists typically engage with believers is typically confrontational. Um, We tend to argue with them. We try to throw up apologetics. But what usually happens is what's called the backfire effect. Just by show of hands, has anyone heard of this before? Let's say maybe a fifth of of the crowd. Okay, that's interesting. All right. The backfire effect, there was a study done in 2009 that showed that when you have a conversation with somebody and you want, if they, they're holding a belief that is not in line with reality, if you present them facts, they are more than likely going to double down on the belief. They're less likely to accept the facts <coughs> that you give them and they'll find some excuse to ignore them. And they'll believe in whatever they believe even more. It's something really interesting. Street epistemology completely circumvents the backfire effect. And the examples that I'm going to show you today will, will illustrate that. Some common misconceptions about street epistemology. I've heard a lot of people say that street epistemology is really for atheists to pick on Christians. No, that's not at all the case. In fact, I would like to start seeing believers using this approach when talking to other people. I'll have some examples here where we're gonna have a conversation with a woman that believes in karma. Completely non-religious, although some people live like it is a religion. But we'll go ahead and talk about that. So it's not just about Christians and you don't have to be on the street to do this. The term street epistemology I think puts a hand behind our back because right from the get-go we need to explain that you don't have to be on the street and initiate talks for it to be considered street epistemology. I'll say that again. You don't need to be on the street and initiate talks to have a conversation with a believer and use street epistemology. When we have these types of talks, we're on a mission to identify truths. Now, sometimes, if somebody holds a belief that's about a God and it might not be true, maybe they will find their way to atheism. That's quite possible. But it's not necessarily the main idea of street epistemology. Some people say that we're picking on people that are unqualified to defend their beliefs. I see this all the time in the YouTube comments. They say don't read the YouTube comments, but I do. I learn more about the work that I do from reading the comments and the criticisms and the suggestions than anything else. And a lot of people say, you know, that girl that you were talking to, she wasn't qualified to explain why Jesus exists. You're selectively picking these people. And it always rankles me because how offensive is that to the person that holds that belief, that really thinks that it's true? Do you think that she would agree with that criticism? I highly doubt it. Some people say that SE or street epistemology is too powerful, that you should warn people. I'm actually beginning to think that that critique might have some merit because within five or 10 minutes, if the person is honest, I'm nearly certain that I can lower their confidence In what they believe if they're being honest with themselves. I've actually started these days by saying, can I have a chat with you? But just a heads up, there is a chance that the belief that you think is true, you might be less confident by the end of it. You might be more confident and you might be just as confident. But I I almost feel the need now to at least give people a heads up that that's the case. And save your questions for the end. I I get the sense that you guys are like, okay, I want to ask them about that. I'll answer all your questions at the end. Another misconception is that we never back down from using this approach. There are times when it's apparent that a believer that I'm talking to needs it, even though it's probably not true and I can ask five questions and, the, and that person would be less sure that it's true. Sometimes you can, you can get a sense of it. They'll tell you, if, if I didn't believe that this God existed, if I didn't think that there was a pagan goddess protecting me, I, I, don't, know, I don't know what I'd do. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. So there are times where we'll back off. One of the first rules of street epistemology is to do no harm. We don't want to harm people, we want to help them. Did I say that you don't have to initiate the conversations on the street? Okay, I'll probably harp on that a couple times, but you don't. I could have waited for living in Texas, living in San Antonio, it's not too, I wouldn't have to wait too long to Have somebody say something, make a claim, and then find myself practicing street epistemology. But I do know that that would take a while. So I've actually taken it upon myself to go out with my camera, this GoPro right here in fact, and initiate talks. But you don't have to do that. You can wait until somebody says something first. And I'm hoping that by the end of this talk you'll be more open to the idea of not backing away from somebody. If somebody makes a a comment, a claim, could be about a god or that they think it's gonna rain tomorrow because they washed their car. That's an opening for you to have a conversation and there's no more excuses because street epistemology is friendly. It's gentle. You don't have to worry about getting in a fight with the person on an airplane if you question why they think prayer is real, for example. Oh, just a little side note on the uh, the scenarios. Boghossian is working on this app called Atheos It's out in New Zealand and Australia now, but it basically is what I wish I had had when I was going out on the street and making these conversations happen. It's an app that can work on your phone, iOS or Android, and it will put you in a scenario where you can practice. The believer says this, what is the optimal response? So you can do that from the comfort of your own home, which is really cool. All right, let me tell you about these worried apologists. Does everyone know what an apologist is first? Let me just start with that. Show of hands. Okay, most people here do. I'm gonna repeat it for the people that don't. An apologist is essentially a professional believer. They've they've made a career out of defending the beliefs that they hold. And then they write books and do these speaking circuits and so forth. And uh, they try to show others, this is the best way to defend your belief against the atheist that might challenge it. I've got some strong opinions on apologists honestly, but I won't get into that. But what was interesting is that they showed, there was this one instance where they had this, con- this, uh, this convention, it was called Defend the Faith, and they ended up showing one of my interviews, one of my five-minute chats at that convention, and then they did a breakdown on it and talked about how, how dangerous it was and how how unfair it was, because look at this. Here's this atheist picking on this poor Christian. He's completely unprepared, and look, at he's not even using an argument. How disingenuous is that? Well, that's true, we're not using an argument. That's the beauty of the technique. I don't have to argue your your point. Street epistemology is about understanding how you arrived at the belief, the method. I don't care what you believe, I wanna know why you think it's true. And they're baffled by this approach. That They're, they're, af- they're frightened by it because they've watched a number of videos and they're at the pulpit, just like I'm at this pulpit, but they're at the pulpit talking to to other budding apologists by saying, this approach is effective. We're worried about it. We're unprepared for it. We need to do a better job in the church preparing our believers for this type of onslaught of these friendly questions asking why you believe what you believe. Okay, these guys are are apologists. They're standing at the pulpit and they're addressing a room full of apologists and they're talking about street epistemology At the very start here, they're talking about Larry Taunton. Does anyone recognize that name? He's writing a book about Christopher Hitchens possibly drifting towards Christianity at the end of his life. Yeah, that guy. (laughs) But anyways, he he did a study. He did a study with 60 former believers, and they they brought them in, and they recorded them, and they said, why don't you believe anymore? And they're going to be talking about the results of the study. But what's interesting in this clip, I find, is that they talk about how the four horsemen, Dennett, Harris... Dawkins, um. Hitchens, thank you. (laughs) I just lost my cred there. Um, I just said his name, okay we're good. They're talking about how they they paved the way for people like myself, people like the Atheist Experience, where we can now have shows, great shows that that address thousands of people, video channels, blogs, YouTube channels, that type of stuff. And at the end of the talk, This is only two minutes long, but I wanted to show it because they're more worried about street epistemology than they are the Dawkins, the Dennett, the Hitchens, the Harris. They're more worried about this approach of street epistemology than they are debate.
1: Let me put this in perspective with another bit of research. Larry Taunton of the Fixed Point Foundation did something a couple of years ago that was very insightful. He uh, put out a request for people who claimed that they had been Christians and had deconverted and said, we'd like to talk to you. We'd like to give you a couple of hours. Just have you tell us how that happened. We're not going to try to convert you. If you don't ask us for our reasons, we'll just listen and ask clarifying questions. And so they paid them a little bit to come in. And once word got out that that was really what they were doing, they had lots of people come in. I think they had over 60 people responding to that hours upon hours upon hours of taped interviews, Taunton said, we thought when we set this up that we were going to hear a lot about the new atheists, about people like Dawkins and Hitchens and uh, Dennett and Harris. Never once in all of the hours of interviews was any one of those people ever named, not once. Instead, it was, well, there was this blog that I was reading or there was this YouTube video or a YouTube channel. It was all social media. Now, that doesn't mean that the new atheists had nothing to do with it. They created an environment in which these kinds of social media could flourish. But that was the point of contact. That was the place that it was happening. And what that means, strategically, is something terribly important. It means you can't have your champion apologists going out there with the apologetic 20 gauge to take down the bear. It's not just one antagonist and one apologist standing up to it. Which would you rather fight, an angry bear or 10,000 hornets? So the hornets are going to be everywhere. They're going to be places you can't be. You can be the most trained apologist in the world. You can have all of the fallacies of the God delusion mapped out in your mind point by point. And 50 miles away somebody is using things that aren't even arguments to undermine the faith of somebody you'll never meet
0: and they use the 10,000 that's coming I think that's coming from Peter Boghossian's book he's calling for 10,000 people to learn street epistemology and engage with believers in the manner that you're about to see today so I think that's where they're getting it from and they're worried about it they they would much rather have a a debate an apologist going up you know somebody very trained with counter-apologetics they're worried about this approach and nothing actually makes me happier Okay, I, I wanted to give a real world example here before we get into some of the videos. Let's say that you're on an airplane trip and the person next to you says something like, I always say a quick prayer before we take off. Sometimes we're just ambivalent about it. I'm like, am eh, like, that's fine. Just, Do you have any pretzels or something? Like, I don't, don't even want to engage with them. Sometimes we might say, well, nothing fails like prayer. I agree with this. But coming up with that response would probably not help me better understand why that believer believes it. I might say something like, did you know that prayer harms more people than it actually helps? It might make for a a fun talk, and it's probably true, but it would more than likely result in the person shutting down and not being willing to engage with you. Or how this is probably even worse, (laughs) whatever, I don't really care. Um, How about this? I'd love to learn why you think prayer works. If this approach isn't for you, that's fine. I I don't want to put you in a position where you're uncomfortable doing it. But what I hope you walk away from this talk is that this is friendly. You can have a nice cordial discussion with somebody about why why they think prayer works on your whole flight from Austin to D.C. or whatever. And you can have an engaging talk, and I'll probably never forget the talk at the end of it. They might come back with, well, I've always landed safely after praying. Your superpowers would be quite useful at the FAA. A little snarky. <laughs> Prayer is no more reliable than chance. How about this? Have others prayed beforehand and not landed safely? This is street epistemology where you're asking a question that's causing them to think. Hmm, I'm not sure. If you can get a response like that, that's key. You can end the talk right now and just talk about the weather or where you're going and that's fine. Street epistemology is all about realistic goals and planting seeds of doubt. And we're gonna get into that further. Realistic goals. When I first went out, I read Peter's book, I put on my GoPro and I went up to street preachers and I thought if I can, be effective with these guys, I can talk to anybody. And I had this great talk with this one street preacher, and I thought, man, that's it. He's not gonna be a believer anymore. I went back the next week, and there he was, and I was crushed. Like, (laughs) wait a second! So immediate deconversions are gonna be quite unlikely, but you do want to establish rapport. You do want to listen, and you want to strive for understanding and be respectful. And if you can meet them again, that's even better. Sometimes for people, just having a conversation with a believer and not losing your cool, make that your goal. Like if you always blow up at a believer and you end up walking away mad and they end up walking away mad, set it up as your goal to just have a conversation with a believer where you don't get upset. I love this illustration. This is street epistemology in a nutshell. We want to put a pebble in a person's shoe so that it nags at them a little bit, so that it, it... they think about it, they find themselves thinking about it, and eventually, they might actually address the pebble and remove it from the shoe. Somebody had asked me, Anthony, are you removing or adding the pebble? And I thought it was a good question, because I think it could actually be one or the other. It was so difficult to pare down which videos to show you today, because I have several hundred on my YouTube channel, and they're not all good. Some of them suck. Some of them are in a playlist called Bails and Fails because they were just so bad. (laughs) But um, I wanted to give people an accurate representation of what's going on out there. So, what example do I show you today? Should I show you Sister Clarice, who is 100% sure that her God exists because of prayer? I'm not showing you that one. How about street preacher Gary? This guy teaches other people how to street preach and says that he is a slave for Christ. That would have been an interesting one. A little too long. Jamil, Anyone see this one with Jamil? Show of hands. Nobody? A couple. Okay. Jameel is 100% sure his God exists, and the main reason was because of prayer. 11 minutes later, he lowered his confidence to 60%. Should I show you Michaela? Michaela was 100% sure her God existed. After a 10-minute talk, she was about 75% sure. We ended the talk, I ran into her two weeks later, and she said, we started chatting again, she said, uh, I was in church thinking about the talk. I was listening to the, to the sermon, and I found myself thinking back to our talk. And she lowered her confidence even more to 50%. And She went on to say that the talk would affect the way that she plans to approach things with her kids, which is awesome. Okay, but I do want to show you this one, it's with Miguel. He's the bottle label unraveler guy. You guys seen that one? It's one of my favorites. The talk is about faith, and we're gonna get into that. Faith is, is a big thing when it comes to street epistemology. This video is about 10 minutes long. What's interesting about this talk is that uh, this is one of the rare times where somebody walks up to me. I've been on this campus for a long time, like weeks, and he's like, what, what are you doing? So the video starts off with that, and I'm like, record. Um, So we have this great talk and I've overlaid a few things on the video. There's a timer in the top left-hand corner to show how much time has elapsed since we start talking. I've added some captions at the bottom, so if the captions are in white, it's the interlocutor talking, it's the conversation partner. If the captions are in aqua blue, it's me talking. And in the right-hand side, on the very top, I came up with this acronym. I wanted to drive home what makes a typical talk with a believer different when you're using the approach of street epistemology. So I have this acronym called PART. P-A-R-T. P is for the number of times I pause. It's very important. A is the number of times I ask a question. Street epistemology is almost always about asking questions. R is the number of times I repeat. You ever hear of active listening? You listen, you listen, you listen. You summarize what they say and you repeat it back to them so that they can hear it back. So, I keep track of that. And then T is the number of times that I'm telling them something. That number should be very low. If I'm telling them about atheism, if I'm telling them about evolution, if I'm telling them about the facts that are out there, then that's not a good indication that you're doing street epistemology. So, here's Miguel. Hey. Hey, I just had a question. What are you doing? I'm interviewing people. Oh, well, my first name is Anthony. Miguel. Miguel? Yes, oh, sir. Nice to meet you. Yeah, I'm just interviewing strangers about how they arrived at their God belief. Oh,
2: cool. Do you want
0: to do a quick interview? Yeah, for sure. awesome. I'll time it for five. Okay. Miguel. Well... What God do you believe in, dude?
2: I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Why? Because I know He died on the cross, and I know He's the Almighty God.
0: Okay. How confident are you that the belief is true? If, if 100% was, I'm 100% confident that Jesus died on the cross for me, and zero percent is I'm not confident at all that Jesus died for me. Where would you be on the scale?
2: I'm 100%. Wow. Oh. Although sometimes it may feel, sometimes I may feel like I struggle with my faith sometimes. You know, like you know how we sometimes you go through things and we feel like God's not, God's not here, and in reality, <laughs> you know, we we should we should sh- away from Him. He never leaves us. And okay. so I, I I always know like I, you
0: just know it. Yeah. How do you know it, dude? How how? How could you be 100% confident on a belief?
2: I don't know, just, I guess, faith. And just the foundation I was raised so far
0: What is your definition of faith? If I were to write it down on this clipboard right now, what would you, how would you describe it? Faith
2: is the hope in things it? unseen.
0: The hope in things unseen?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, uh, right. Yeah.
0: And that's faith? I would say so. Would you? Would you give a different term? I've heard. I've like heard that? similar definitions yeah. of it. How, how big of your belief that hundred percent is faith, and how what other percent is you being raised in Because I think you mentioned that you were well, right, I mean, exposed like, to it
2: in situations like God has just like showed up in my life, you know, and in my family's life. Like for example, I'll give an example. Like. I, um, I grew up without my dad. Sort of grew up without my dad. Uh-huh. He kind of cheated on my mom. Had oh, a baby. Sorry to hear that. You know, like I just went through a lot of stuff when I was younger. Yeah. And I, I came to, a, um, like I guess you could say, like a real, a real like, truth to who Jesus was. You know, like I got saved when I was five. Like when I like when I got saved, at five years old. Yeah. Like my grandma talked to me. Like like she introduced me to Jesus. And like at that time, like when I was five years old, I knew I was gonna go to heaven. You know what I mean? Like I was just.
0: C- can we get back to the faith part of it yeah, 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 yeah I know that you're you're using faith to be so confident that Jesus works in your life and died for you and and you believe in it so strongly and you define it as the hope in things unseen do you use faith for other things and do you hope for things that are unseen in your life yes. besides Jesus
2: yeah I think you do people put, people put the faith in all types of stuff like but what? I guess like this like for example I have a test on one today I hope I pass say. You hope you pass. You know what I mean. Are you but equating
0: faith with hope? Faith, hope. Is faith the same as hope?
2: I want to say faith is the same as hope, but faith—you kind of put your hope in faith. Hmm. I don't know.
0: With with regards to this example for you st- for this test, you hope that you pass it.
2: But I know in order for me to pass it, I have to study. Sure. to understand the material you know, okay before I take the test yeah you know
0: when you hope that you pass the test is there not an element of a possibility that you might fail the test yes does, does faith have a have an element of it possibly not happening or not being true I guess that is
2: something that you just don't know until you die if we talk about Jesus you know what I mean because, like, I guess, I guess somebody could have, like, a possibility, like, maybe God isn't real. But then, like, and then if I'm, and if I'm wrong, then I guess I'd have to face that when I die. But then, if I'm right, then somebody else has to face that when they die. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Miguel, if, if faith is equivalent to hope with your definition of it, and there's an element of it not happening or not, not coming true, because hope has that possibility of it not you, you hope you want to pass the test and maybe you won't pass the test, right? If, you're, if faith is hope and it has that element of it not being true, can somebody really be at the 100% mark on the confidence of a belief being true? I
2: would say so. Because like, cause it's like you put you put your all into that. Like, you know, like I put my all into it. You're invested Christ. into it? Yeah. And it's a daily... You know what I mean? Like, I feel like like the Bible says work out daily. You know what I mean? And I, like, sometimes, like... Some days we don't really. I don't know if you're a believer or. You know, I'll, I'll answer know, it later. I don't know how you believe or I don't anything like that. But I mean, like, you know, like, I just feel like daily, you know, I mean? like you work out your faith on a daily basis, you know, because God's grace is renewed every day in our lives.
0: Are you saying that because you've invested so much into the belief that it's difficult to consider that the belief might not be true? I guess. That was fast. That was a fast five, wasn't it? Do you want to go another couple minutes? Sure. Okay. I-I find it really fascinating that this investment in the belief and your acknowledgement that because I've invested so much time and effort into the belief, that I'm reluctant to even examine if the belief might not be true. Is that what you're saying? I don't want to put words in your mouth, so... That is what I'm saying. It is? Yeah,
2: like... You know, like, like, to me... Like, in a way, I think, how- how can God not be real? You know what I mean? Like, out of everything that's- everything that's in the world, and everything that you see, like, the sky, and, like, just, like, everything, like, how could it be something other than God? You know?
0: Just not knowing something makes you think it's all the more possible that this specific God exists in the life? I would say so. You know, I've had conversations with people of other- other religions on this campus and elsewhere. For sure. Um... I've talked to a Muslim woman who said that she's 100% convinced that Allah is the one true God. And I think we probably agree she has the right to believe in that God. She uses faith and she hopes that Allah is real. She hopes it. And she's invested a lot of time in the belief. Right? Like she was raised in it. She puts a lot of time in it. She goes to the, the mosque and does all these prayers. She's invested a lot of time in it. She hopes that it's real. She really wants it to be real because she's invested so much time in it. Mm-hmm. In what way does that make her belief any, any more true than yours?
2: Um, I don't know too much about the Muslim religion, so, I don't know how, I but
0: don't you don't even have to know about it. Like, I don't know much about it either. But she's convinced about it. Yeah. You know, she, she's certain, she's 100% convinced that the belief is true and that Muhammad went to heaven on a winged horse. Like, she really believes it. Mm-hmm. She uses faith. She hopes that it's true. She's invested a tremendous amount of time in the belief. How could... How could she be so confident in the belief that's a completely different belief than you?
2: I don't know. I see what you're saying. Maybe just... Her upbringing? Do you think
0: her upbringing has any bearing on the truth of the belief?
2: Um... No, because I know that Allah is not real. I know that there's only one she got. So,
0: her being raised in the culture has no bearing on the belief being true, her yeah. belief in Allah. Yeah. Yet, you're standing here today possibly largely because you were raised in it and exposed to this specific God?
2: But I think if I wasn't raised, like, just, like, stuff that I've been through in my life, you know what I mean? Like,
0: like... You think I, if you were raised in, to be a Hindu, you might be a Christian today?
2: Yeah. You do? I do. Just because of, like, you know, like, I've seen God, you know, like, just, like, in ways that I wouldn't even think, you know, like, I just know, like, this has to be Jesus, you know what I mean?
0: You're seeing things that are happening in your life, and you're attributing them to the Christian God. Yeah. But this woman would see things in her life and attribute them to a completely different God. How could we go about figuring out who would be more correct in the belief? Is there any way that we can tell that you might be more correct than her? Or vice versa? I don't know. If you have no way of knowing, if you are more correct in the belief than that Muslim woman. How could you possibly be at the 100% mark on the confidence of your belief? I don't know. Thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it, Miguel. Thank you very much. I love showing that whenever I give a talk. It's usually my go-to video because it was, it really encapsulates what the approach is about. And that was about a year ago. And there are things when I watch that now, I'm like, oh, I screwed up there. I shouldn't have done that, that type of thing. So I, I, I enjoy sticking with this and trying to get better at it. Imagine Miguel running into somebody asking questions like me on his campus or in daily life on an airplane, every three months. How amazing would that be? I think that would be great. I can't imagine any harm coming from that type of dialogue when somebody says that they believe in something. All right, I wanna unpack faith. Faith is a very big part of Peter Boghossian's book. A lot of people use faith as an epistemology. They use faith as a way to come to know that something's true. I don't think it's reliable based on the thousands of definitions that I've heard people use for faith, but there's no doubt that believers, when you ask them, even people that say at the start that they're evidence-based, it almost always comes down to, yeah, you know, it was really prophecy, but I understand now that really prophecies are not reliable, but it's really all faith for me now. Okay, that's good. That's the finish line, actually, because then you just need to talk about the reliability of it and ask them questions. Is it reliable? Did you guys notice the count, the part count at the end of the video there? The high number of questions, there's some pausing, and the repeating back, and very little telling. It's not just about God, like I mentioned. Uh, This fellow was on a campus wearing a shirt that says porn kills love, and going on about how porn and masturbation were harmful. (laughs) And it's tempting. When I'm in street epistemologist mode, I try to be neutral. I was dying to tell him dude, masturbation is good, it's, it's fun. <laughs> you don't feel bad about it, you shouldn't be ashamed of it. Have you heard of Dr. Daryl Ray? Um, but I had a conversation with him, I'm not gonna show it today. I, I aw. Spoiler alert. Even if it could be shown to him, to his satisfaction that pornography was not harmful, he would still be against it because he was a Christian. That's why I like going after the God beliefs, because usually these ancillary beliefs that people hold are all resting on that deeper foundation. Alright, I want to show one more video. This is about nine minutes long. Again, same thing. Timer captions, the part tracking. Uh, This is not about God. And I chose this video because I think it will help us more objectively look at this approach of street epistemology if it's not about God. Hi. Hello. Do you have five minutes for an interview?
3: Sure. All
0: right. Awesome. How you doing?
3: Good. How are you? I'm
0: good. I'm live streaming, and recording. You down with that? Yeah. All right. My name's Anthony.
3: Hello, Anthony. I'm Kiana. Hi.
0: It's a pleasure to meet <laughs> you. You too. Such a smiling face. Are you happy about something, or do you um, have good news, or you, um, <laughs> you look really happy?
3: Well, school's out, so. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: School you have finals over. next week.
3: Yes. I'm I had some earlier this week,
0: and now I have some. Okay. Today. Yeah. May I get the f- spelling of your first name?
3: K-I-A-N-A.
0: Kiana. Yes. All right, cool. Key. All right, my name's Anthony, and what I do is just flag down random people walking by okay. to ask them if they hold any deeply held belief. That they want to spend five minutes just chatting about, and I time it for five. Definitely and not. yeah, it could be about anything. Usually, it's like spiritual stuff. Mm-hmm. But it, it could really broach any topic, mm, okay. like gods, karma, magic, ghosts, that type of stuff.
3: Let's see. Do
0: you want to burn five minutes and just chat about something like yeah, that?
3: Yeah. Let me. Would you chat okay. with me, or am I just strictly talking?
0: I'm gonna ask questions. Okay, good. And I want to understand okay. why you believe it. Okay, cool. And it's gonna be completely like non-confrontational, okay. and probably even Go fun. For it time five minutes all right okay. so you can pick any topic you want
3: okay um let's go with karma
0: karma yeah okay excellent before we even get any further okay how do you define it because i want to make sure i understand it
3: hmm let's see i would say good or bad what you do can eventually come back to you okay good or bad
0: and that's karma yeah do you have a a really vivid example of something that happened that you would say karma
3: for me personally I feel like whenever I say something mean about someone in my head or if I speak it out in public um, I'll like break out and honestly that's probably not why I break out but I'll be like karma oh it karma interesting karma for being being ugly
0: if you don't think or say anything bad about a person. No, pers- if I do. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. But if you if you don't say anything bad, or think anything bad about mm-hmm. a person, do you notice a difference in your complexion?
3: Honestly, like right now, my skin's on a good on a good turn, and I haven't been thinking ugly thoughts. So. Okay. <laughs> wow. But that's just a small tidbit of something. Like if I litter. Okay. Something bad. I have bad luck, so something bad will happen, and I'm just like, it's because I littered. Okay. Yeah.
0: So, if you were driving home, Mm -hmm. heading home, and you tossed out some trash on the road, Mm -hmm. and something bad happened to you later, you would... Attribute it to that. You'd attribute it to that? Mm -hmm. Okay.
3: (laughs) I'm a strong believer in karma, and if I do something good... You're really strong. Yeah.
0: How sure are you that it's true? Zero to 100? 100% all confidence, no doubt, 0% Uh, all doubt? I
3: would say... 82%. 82%? 82%. 82%?
0: <laughs> it
3: matters, yes.
0: What do you study here?
3: I study communication.
0: <laughs> okay. 82% <laughs> yeah. confident that karma is real, that it mm-hmm. happens. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's go to this example of you go heading home. Okay. Trash out the window.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What would be an example of something happening that you would attribute to that action?
3: Hmm. Common things that have happened. I either break something,
0: or... You break a dish or something? and
3: Yeah, break something. Something will... T- break a nail. Okay. It's just little things. I'm just like, you know, this is... because I littered.
0: Okay. Is there a certain amount of time that can pass...
3: Usually happens within the day.
0: Within a 24-hour period within of time... Like 24 hours. You'll get karmically... Punished for a bad action.
3: Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I just attribute it to those things because if you, if you live a good life, ultimately, good things will happen to you. That's how I feel. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. If you didn't litter, if I didn't and litter. you didn't think bad things about mm-hmm. people or call them names mm-hmm. or whatever, and you were just good, for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. would you? never experience bad things.
3: I think it all goes into my mindset as well. So if I think, if I live a good life and something does, something bad does happen to me, I feel like I would have a better mindset towards it. Like, oh, it's not that bad. You know what I mean? Like, no. Okay. Let me, let me... Sorry. No, it's fine. Um, so if I did something bad, okay. something bad happened, I would attribute it to that thing and I'd be like, I'm not living a good life. Yes. But if I lived a good life and something bad happened to me, I would have a better mindset towards it. Like, it wouldn't, it wouldn't get to me as much as if I did something bad before. Does, am I making any I, type of I sense? think
0: I understand. Do
3: you get what I'm saying? Yes. You have a better outlook on life when you do positive things.
0: Right. Even if something bad happens... Even if something
3: bad happens to you, you'll be able to handle it better.
0: Because you're just mm-hmm. like... Yet how would you know that you being good and avoiding all this... How would you know that it's not karmic punishment? How
3: would I know it's not? Mm, I guess it really just still goes back all into how I like my mindset. Just I'm doing positive things, so this can't be a punishment for all the positive things I've done. It's just... Things happen. I don't know.
0: I'm Things I'm happen.
3: Crazy. Yeah. I'm like, am I, am I crazy?
0: We have 10 seconds. Okay. And we can go longer if you have the time.
3: Okay.
0: How do you differentiate karmic punishment from things happen? Hmm.
3: I think it would be just things that are just... How did this happen? Why did this happen? Uh... Oh, that is a good question. You're making me me rethink my whole life. Hmm. I don't know. I feel like it would just... If I did something bad and something bad happened immediately after, I feel like this is... This has to correlate. Like, this is punishment. God's telling me don't do that again. I don't know. That was a good question. Because I'm trying to think of anything bad that's happened and I feel like I've been doing good, I usually just brush it off. Cause I like I said, my mindset's in a different place. If I haven't done anything wrong, I'm just like it'll get better. It's almost like a snowball effect for me. If I do something bad and then something bad happens, I'm just like, oh my gosh, and then my mindset is in such a bad place. Maybe karma is not even just something bad happening to you, but just getting you in a in a space that just, well, at least for me, getting you in a space that just, to make you live a better life in the end. Huh. Now I'm like, that percentage looks a little 82%. I'm gonna stick with it.
0: If you have no way of telling the difference between karmic punishment Mm -hmm. and things just happening, Mm -hmm. why believe in it at all?
3: Hmm. Guess it's just something I live by. It's gonna get me through. Honestly.
0: Is eighty-two percent the most accurate spot to be on the confidence?
3: Now it isn't. <laughs> I would, now you're going to go back home and think about this, and I'm like, I need to tell him. Okay.
0: I'll give you a card when
1: we're done so you can okay, do it again.
3: Because if I get it, I'm going to be like, okay, I have it. Let's see. I would say now that I'm a little unsure, I would go with 53 because I still believe it. I'm like, where am I going with this? 53 now.
0: Thank you so much for your time.
3: You're awesome. <laughs> you are too.
0: Did you notice that it was more like a partnership? We're, it wasn't antagonistic, we're like working together to solve this problem. How do we figure it out? How could we determine if, if karmic punishment is any different than things just happen? That's a big part of the, the approach of SE. She comes back up to me 20 minutes later and we continue the talk. And she lowers her confidence even further. Uh, let me show the picture of Kiana here. Ooh, that's not it. I'm sorry, I don't know how that got in there. Oh, that's not Kiana either. I apologize, I'm not sure how these are getting in here. I'm joking. These, these are in here on purpose. Um, if this was a conflict. We probably wouldn't have reached this point in the conversation where she's thinking about it. Complete stranger. I've never met her before. And that was just a that was just a wonderful moment. And I have to say it's so tough to just be quiet. Oh, it's the hardest thing. We instinctively want to fill those pauses with our own thoughts and uh, it's hard just to shut up. Street epistemology is a lot more than just being polite, being cordial. If I were to have a talk with somebody and they didn't walk away thinking about the belief or questioning it a little bit, like, yeah, why do I think it's true? How did I get this belief in the first place? How can I find out if it's true? Do I really need to maintain the belief? That's the gift of doubt. And if I can, if I can impart the gift of doubt at the end of a short talk, then I consider that a success. Okay. I'm going to close it up here. I've just got one more thing I want to cover, one major point, and then we can get to the Q&A. What you've seen, these are examples of what I would call micro-interventions or micro-conversations. They're one-on-one talks with people. But we see lots of examples of macro-conversations. And the objective of both is to help people generally. Typically the people that are on the Atheist Experience or if you're going to have a debate or you're On a speaking tour for your book. The main reason why most of us go out and have talks with believers, I think, is because we want to help them. We think that they probably have a mistaken view of reality. We want them to identify it and discard the belief or find a better reason to hold the belief. There's this disconnect that I'm noticing and I want to point this out. The viewers of debates, the viewers of counter apologetics, they may not realize that they might be using the wrong tool for the job. How can I explain this? How can I demonstrate this in the, in the easiest way? So I came up with this, this model. And this is the legend. On the left here, that little white dot, that would re- symbolize a believer. The middle is like a doubting believer or somebody that's like on the fence. And then red, the traditional red for atheist. So we might tease them. It might be Bill Maher teasing a believer, and you have an audience watching. Now we know that this is effective. There are probably people that are in this room because we watched somebody get ridiculed and we thought that's the exact same belief that I have and I can't maintain the belief. We know that it works. Here's another example. This would be like a Richard Dawkins debate or something. Hey, you got your atheist, you got your believer, all right, you got your crowd watching, And then we have counter apologetics, much like the atheist experience. So I want to be very clear, and that's why there's like two dots here, because there's usually usually two hosts, okay? Yeah, I've got our our hosts here, and they're broadcasting, and an audience is watching. When we use the counter apologetics or the macro approach, I'm likening it to like the scary supernova, where the believer is going to crouch down, they're going to have that backfire effect, they're not going to absorb what's being shown to them, what's being told to them. But the scary supernova is bright enough where even though the shield goes up on your believer, the audience does see that and they do change their mind. And I want to just highlight that with these little dots here. So you might have all these little believers that were observing that interaction and they changed their mind. And we have evidence of this to a certain extent. We hear from the hosts all the time that we get emails all the time from people that watch the show and say, I just watched somebody use the exact same argument and I can no longer hold that belief. The counter-apologetics approach, the debate approach, they all have their place. But what I think is happening here is atheists don't recognize that there are multiple tools available to them in their arsenal. And I'm calling street epistemology like the revealing light bulb. Rather than this glaring supernova, how about just a a little revealing light bulb? The disconnect I think that is happening here is that atheists are seeing how effective the counter-apologetic approach is and then they're mimicking it. But what they're failing to recognize is that they don't have an audience. It's just a one-on-one interaction here. So I think a lot of atheists, and I've done this myself, I have family members that don't talk to me anymore because I use the aggressive approach. Looking back, I think if I had used that more gentle approach of street epistemology and try to understand what they believe and why, if I use the right tool for the job, I think our relationships would probably be much better. The next time that you're about to have a conversation with a believer, Ask yourselves, what venue are you in? Is this a one-on-one conversation or do you have a large audience? What are your objectives? What are you hoping to get out of it? Do you value the relationship? Is it worth jeopardizing the relationship to reach a greater audience, like we see with the counter-apologetics approach? And I'm hoping that the next time that you do have a conversation with believers, you do ask yourselves that and choose the appropriate tool. Thank you very much. If you want to learn more about this, you can read Peter Boghossian's book. It it will be in the in the library here by the end of today if it's not already. You can go to my Twitter, my Facebook, my YouTube, but even better, there is a website, streetepistemology.com. There's also a private Facebook group where there are thousands of people that are using these techniques and they're sharing what's working and what's not. You can probably even get on Blab tonight or Periscope and see people that are doing this as well. They're, they're using this approach in a, in a wide variety of, of venues, which is really interesting to see. Okay. Did I save enough time for the q and A? I I hope so.
2: Do you alter the SEE approach with family members?
0: I would use Street Epistomal, and I have used it with my family members, but what I found is that they know me, they know who I am. And then all of a sudden when I start asking Socratic questions, it's different. Like it's, where did Anthony go? So I, it is definitely easier with a stranger, but I would still use the approach. You can even say, hey, I learned this new technique for talking with believers. I, can I try it out on you? It might look a little different. I might sound weird, but let me give it a shot. You can try it that way. I I wouldn't, I don't think I would ever use counter apologetics again with a friend or family member or a one-on-one, I'm done with that. But I do realize that it has its place and you could, you can do the supernova effect, you can completely blast out the person you're talking to, and affect a thousand people. Especially if there's videos that get played on YouTube all the time. Like, the, what the atheist experience does is extremely valuable, and I'm not asking you to change anything. But with a family member, I would do it differently. A suggestion, what you could do, is don't have the talk about God, if that's a real sensitive thing. Be the person in your family that asks Socratic questions about everything else. When they say, we need to make sure that we leave 10 minutes early because the traffic's going to be bad. How do you know that? Why do you think that that's the case? What would change your mind? So you you can choose safer topics and be the person. And what I suspect will happen is they will probably start asking those questions of themselves for the deeper issues. That would be my recommendation on family members.
1: Should we use SE with strangers only if they're easier?
0: At least for me, it's easier with strangers. For other people, your niche might be family members. Because you know them, you're more comfortable with them. They know that you're the kind of quirky person that asks weird things. You can just slip right in there and do it. I do think it's a lot easier with strangers than, than family members. Go with what you're comfortable with. And if you're not comfortable talking to a stranger, don't feel like you have to. I don't want anyone to think that we're forcing people to shift gears. We just want you to be aware that there's another tool available to you.
1: Are all your talks one way or are they a
0: conversation? I'm kind of changing the dynamic because I'm approaching it as, I'm the interviewer, you're the interviewee, you're not going to answer all my questions. But usually after, like that first talk with Miguel, that goes on for another 10 more minutes, and he, after we shake hands, he's then, well, what do you believe? And then I, I tell him about my atheism, and that's when I rely on all of the things that I've learned from the atheist experience and all the counter-apologetic stuff where I can adequately defend why I'm an atheist. So I do find that there's some value in that. In the talk with Miguel, he even asks me, I don't know what you believe or not, but and I say, I'll wait till the end and we'll talk about it. I hate to get into my position. When you said neutra- neutrality, that's exactly it. I want to try to be as neutral as possible. I don't want them to think I'm taking a position on it. But, it ha- we're humans. This has to be a conversation. I can't just end the talk and then never see them again. Sometimes I've done it and I always feel bad about it. But I like to stick around and say, do you have any more questions? Do you have any questions for me? And then um, I'll usually include those in the video as well. But I feel bad because I'm constantly explaining why I'm an atheist and where I am on the scale and what it would take for me to change my mind. I get into that time and time again. But um, as far as like entertainment value, I try to try to stay focused on... Um, the believer, as well as the educational value of it.
1: Do you use street epistemology on yourselves?
0: So you mentioned, I think at the very start you were talking about, like when, when you get together as a group and you talk about these techniques, we very often do practice this approach on ourselves. We'll even use SE, street epistemology, on SE. Is it helpful? Is it harmful? How would we know? What would it take for us to change our minds to think that this isn't reliable or that type of thing? One of the key parts of this approach, I didn't mention it at all here, I really should have, is that whenever you have a talk with somebody, you need to keep a little bit of yourself open to the possibility that you might be mistaken. Miguel might be correct. I don't think he is because I think the main reason he believes it is because he was taught it when he was five. He was saved by his grandmother or something like that. You want to be humble enough to acknowledge that I might be mistaken as well. At the heart of this, this is all about a quest for the truth. It's not so much about tearing down a belief as it is about recognizing that we probably all have beliefs that we think are true that probably aren't. Our brains are constructing these models of reality and they may may be way off. So without a doubt, and, and I've done this, I've done, people have asked me about abortion and where I am on eating meat and they've used SE on me and even like downloading Downloading content from artists without paying them or something like just you name it like I, they, they bounce that back on me, too And I absolutely love it. I Think that this is the best approach for humanity going forward And I think that we should absolutely turn it on ourselves
2: Do you take your biases and ego out of the equation?
0: Even when I ask people I'm probably selectively biasing because well, maybe she was attractive or he looks friendly or he's walking a little bit slower and probably has more time. So I think that there's biases going on there. You do have to check your ego. Absolutely, uh, it's, you, you wanna make the conversation all about their belief, not even about them. Like when I'm talking to Kiana, there's her, there's me, and then there's this belief. I try to create an environment where we're looking, both looking at the belief that she holds objectively. So even she's looking at it it's out of her mind and we're, exam- we're, we're putting this belief under a microscope and we're examining it together. So um, yeah, absolutely, that's really important. Um, but I have to say, like, when I have a talk with Akiana, I feel good, Like, I, I know that I've done some good today because somebody in the world might be less confident in a belief that's probably not true. That, like, as far as my ego, I, I can't help it, but I'll be completely blunt it feels good to help people abandon beliefs that probably aren't true.
1: I want to say that I'm very, very impressed with uh, the politeness of your approach and your philosophy of doing no harm and the attitude of staying humble and helping the other person, asking you know, questions, in the to let the other person figure it out for themselves.
0: I'm very impressed with your Well, I wish I can claim credit for it. I'm just helping to popularize it. But um, I agree, I, what you said, I completely agree. I, th- I think it's it's respectful and it's sincere. And if you approach these conversations with an openness to even change your mind on it, then how could that possibly be bad? Thank you very much.